The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Radio Tony with Tony Lontis. Author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Your safe space for tough conversations, exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony. Building resilience, talking trauma. Radio Tony. Live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Radio Tony. On W4WN, a platform for the unheard. Good evening, America. Good morning, Australia. You're back on Radio Tony, and we are having another author in the spotlight today. But before I introduce you to a wonderful guest that we've had on before and we needed to continue her amazing story, I just want to let you know that this is the second last of my shows on here on W4WN. There will be more things in the future. I still have lots of shows on BBS Radio out of San Francisco. So I'm not gone from the radio scene, just from W4WN. But I know that we had a wonderful conversation with Miss Denny Meek earlier in the year. And so I have the last two shows with Denny and I am delighted to introduce you to her again today. But before I do, here's a little bit about my friend Denny. At the age of 22, with a degree in psychology, Denny Meek steps into a life that she'd planned where fate is waiting. A chance encounter directs her not towards a brilliant career in a professional world or a happy home life, but to huge experiences that will challenge her inner world and its resources, enforcing harsh realities, domestic violence, single parenting, her daughter's anorexia and the loss one by one of her three children. During an introspective 15 years, she streams words into journals, exploring an unfamiliar landscape at the edge of the world where the dragons are. The words flow and flood past two million. She completes a diploma in freelance journalism. Time to write a book. Now, listeners, today we will be talking about some difficult and triggering subjects. I want you to know that we are here for you, but if this conversation triggers anything in you, please seek help from someone professional to talk to. And I want to quickly just tell you about Denny's book. It's called Still Standing, A Mother's Raw Journey from the Shadows of Loss to the Dawning of Hope. Still Standing, A Mother's Journey from Those Shadows and the Intense Memories of a Really Heavy Duty Life. We'll be covering subjects today, including uh, single parenting, uh, mental health, teen suicide and I want you to know that this is a safe space for those discussions. So last time we spoke to Annie, uh, Danny, we got to the point where we were talking about her single parenting. She'd managed to leave the her husband and the domestic violence situation after the tragic loss of her infant son. Uh, early in his life. So we pick up the story where Denny uh, has entered into that time of single parenting. So good morning, Denny. Hello, Tony, my beautiful, resilient friend. (laughs) Darling, I'm really privileged to have you here doing this conversation with me on the last two shows. Um, I know that we're going to touch on some difficult subjects today, so we're going to take our time and I want to pick up the story um, where you entered into that period of time where you were single parenting. Sure. So 
um, I want you just to talk about the the period of time and then we'll get into our most important subject today and that is around anorexia nervosis. So over to you, my love. Uh, single parenting, Tony. A lot of us experience it these days um, and while it was not easy for me, uh, becoming a single parent of three children, uh, in the context of my entire life, it was my happy chapter. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and it was the one that meant the most to me. <clears throat> and I should say it, it still is my happy chapter because um, I was a single mother from when my youngest child was two and that child still lives with me now. He's a baker, he's 28, and he is a beautiful man. <laughs> That's amazing. I actually get chills when Denny talks to me about her adult son and the fact that he still lives with her because after the loss of three children, three of Denny's four children, the fact that her son still lives with her is both a blessing and a wondrous thing because you've been through so much together. Mm. And that leads us into some of the things that happened whilst you were a single parent. Yeah. What would you like to share with the audience, Jenny? Well, Tony, after, you know, the loss that I experienced of my baby son, Joseph, and the DV in two relationships, uh, the single parenting paved way for a really massive challenge that was insidious in its nature. It crept into our lives very subtly and slowly <clears throat> and it was uh, in the form of a mental illness that only I could see for years. Um, my third child, Ali, was gifted and talented and she was about nine when I began picking up on behaviours that really deeply rattled me. <clears throat> At the time, I couldn't have her seen by a professional because nothing had manifested. It was more an unsettlement I felt watching her mother's intuition. intuition yes mother's intuition a little bit more as well but yes a lot of mother's intuition um she actually would it be all right if i read a little excerpt from my book please do okay please do. okay so so this is anorexia nervosa that descended on and began to devour my only daughter <clears throat> Foods, Ali's favourite topic. She'd spend hours in the kitchen cooking for us, but never eat any of it herself. Her use of the word foods irritated me. Food is a mass noun. It doesn't get pluralised with an S. But that wasn't it. Adding the S broadcast her fear, amplified her obsession with food, overtly relaying her need to control even the grammatical rules by which she'd use it. With genuine authority and great interest, her thinning face would announce the word foods, yet so little would pass her fragile lips. <clears throat> so at the end of that very worrying year, um, it was actually the year 2000, I'd been, I had been able to have her seen that year because her illness manifested. Uh, I was taking her to weekly appointments with a GP uh, a dietitian and a psychologist. Uh, initially, the psychologist told my daughter that she did not have anorexia nervosa. She said, you have an eating disorder, but it's not anorexia. So that gave the illness a safe place to hide until her admission. Uh, her admission to hospital um, totaled about six months. It was four and a half months of which was spent in an adolescent psych ward. When I described Ew. it, yeah. Um, it, it, the, an adolescent psych ward is That's, not a very pleasant place for a teenager no, to spend time. No, Tony, and when I describe visiting her there, uh, her psychiatrist now tells me that there is no difference between my description of that and that of a juvenile detention centre. My daughter oh was no. yeah, my daughter was thirteen 
when she was admitted. So that was very hard for her. I was very hard for me too because there were several gates through which I had to pass and seek permission to enter the premises and each uh-huh. time run run through a list of questions. What's my name? What am I doing here? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was like she was a prisoner. So... Um, Mm, that's got to have an effect, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Going back to when she was nine, um, and is it okay that I, I ask you about this, about the things from a mother's intuitive perspective long before there's clinical evidence or the evidence that doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists look for? Are, are you comfortable if we talk about the things that you thought and you sure. felt at that time when she was nine? Sure, Tony. Yeah. Um, when I go back there, I I get a my stomach grabs. I get a, a yes. deeply rattled sense in my torso about factors that I couldn't do anything about. She began uh-huh. to become over-interested in food, diets, exercising, calories, she just, her interest honed in on those subjects and those subjects kept drawing her. She said to me at that age, oh, maybe she might have been 10 or 11, mum, mm-hmm. am, I, am I fat? And I said, no, sweetie, you're healthy. And healthy became a word that she despised <laughs> because oh. by then it's mental. It's, you know, it yes, is yes. mental. And I'd like to add that it is one of the most complex mental illnesses. It's notoriously difficult to treat and it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. It's, it's difficult to treat because how do those uh, little obsessions, you know... Start. Right, and yes, what is starting them, what's triggering them? And often, not always, it's every case is individual, but often it will be uh, a feeling of a lack of control. It was that for my daughter. Um, so okay. how, how does that manifest as needing to lose weight? You know, it's the way it traverses its paths through that individual's psyche is tricky, you know, shadowy and tricky, yes. really, really hard to shine a light on and work with. Denny, the statistics around anorexia nervosa um, suggest that it is predominantly a girl's mental illness and disease. Yes. Um, and you uh, call it the good girl's illness. I do. Why do I you put that terminology do. around it? <sighs> Um, because uh, they're going to rebel, you know. It's a, it's a yes. way of rebelling, and it, they're doing it in a good way. And it's a way mm-hmm. in which society—it's like they're overdoing what society values. <clears throat> society values this image of, um, you know, thinness, um, yes. etc. They have they they are particular about diet. Uh, exercise and it's like these girls overdo that yes. I don't know if I've explained that adequately but no that's <laughs> that's fine and mm. and and it is a very complex mental illness now we need to stress that for the listeners today it is a mental illness <laughs> but it has an incredibly horrible mortality rate yeah. um, and it's across the world it's not australia america specific it's across the world uh it's prevalent and common in girls and young women um particularly across developed societies can we say yeah and it's a complete plethora of a collection of um mental health will uh, illness that focuses on weight and image and food and what they eat um and And exercise and their mind actually yeah yes and over exercising is another common trait um and it's all wrapped up into this one (coughs) mental illness which is actually different for every individual isn't it danny yes it is tony 
uh, anorexia nervosa especially. Other eating disorders such as bulimia nervosa have more... Uh, yes more common themes running through them. It's not as difficult to treat. It doesn't have the same mortality rate. But yes, anorexia is a very individual illness. And the therapy to treat anorexia, anorexia nervosa is, is equally complex. Um, in some of the research that I was reading, there were just so many therapies. And I'm wondering um, for in in Ali's circumstance, you tried. They tried a whole range of things for Ali, didn't they? Actually, um, at the time, so we're going back twenty years now. Yes. Um, she only pretty much had group therapy. <gasps> yep. <laughs> so, so do yeah. you think that what we've learnt in the intervening time would have been much more helpful for Ali? Yes, I do, although the mortality rate is the bottom line and it stays the same. It stays the same. Mm -hmm. Even after all these years, yes. it still sits around that, that 10%? Yes, well, in my book, I've quoted 20. And that's of yeah, fully I was just going to say. Blown, yeah, that's 20% of yes. fully blown anorexia. That's not those who uh, can resolve it without medical intervention. Yeah. So those, those so who require, who've got fully blown anorexia, um, mm -hmm. who need the hospitalisation, for them it's uh, 20%. Um, and so during Ali's journey, this you felt the first pangs of that when she was nine mm -hmm. and um, she uh, subsequently passed away at uh, 16 and a half, 17? Age, age tw nearly 20, a fortnight from her 20th oh, birthday. Oh, she was nearly 20. Mm. Okay. Yes, could I just go back to the the, the mortality rate includes, yes, um, it's not, uh, most of these um, sufferers will not be allowed by the state to starve themselves to death. So okay. uh, that mortality rate includes failure of organs, such as a pericardial yes. effusion, which Ali did have. Yes. Um, some do suicide. Yes. So it includes a range of um, deaths. Mm. And I'd like to say that by the time Ali died, when she was 20, she died fully recovered from her anorexia. I was actually going to ask about that. Mm, she was fully recovered. Because I've read a number of stories of um, girls and women with anorexia nervosa that have actually recovered and are healthy weight and healthy yeah. for all intents, but mm. subsequently either die from the disease process with, mm -hmm. for instance, heart problems or organ mm -hmm. failure or indeed suicide. So mm. it's a horrendous disease. Mm. It's worrying and it's really hard to live with, Tony. <clears throat> you know, there was, uh, I don't Absolutely. know if you, you remember back then, um, there was uh, a young woman who was well known in Australia named Bronte Cullis. She wrote a book yes. called Bronte, Bronte's Story, added to yes. by her parents and her mother, yes. Jan Cullis, said, Bronte doesn't have anorexia. Our whole family has anorexia. She doesn't mm. mean literally the illness, but that's how much it affects the whole the family to live with. Yeah. And, and to live yeah. with, you know, uh, it's excruciating for us to have this illness in our midst and for us to see it, for her becoming thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. We can see it and she can't see it. And it's just stealing yeah. her life out from our midst and we can't do anything about it. It's terribly yeah. distressing. It's terribly frustrating. And at the time we were experiencing it, I didn't appreciate that the frustration, the the arguments that would erupt between Simon and me sometimes, yes. my eldest and yes. I, were yes. normal, normal for the family of a sufferer. Oh, definitely, because it's a hugely traumatic and ongoing trauma and grief. Yes. If, you, if we just examine that from a mother's perspective mm -hmm. there's a yeah. huge amount of grief and um, let's not forget 
Yeah, and mother guilt, Yeah, which those of us who are mothers really understand mother guilt is that guilt that society projects onto us, which we don't need any help projecting onto ourselves because <laughs> we, we do it quite easily, don't we? Yeah, we're we, very good uh, at doing beat that ourselves we yeah. beat ourselves up about all sorts of things. So I can't imagine what that would have been like for you, Danny. Um, so the beautiful Ali, who was a brilliant, intelligent, amazing girl who actually managed to get through the other side of her disease, then uh, suddenly and unexpectedly takes her own life. Mm. And so I am conscious of discussing this with you live on air Denny because it is such a traumatic memory for you and I applaud your bravery in being so openly and open and willing to talk about these subjects because we don't mm. and to hear from a mother's perspective and I know in many of our conversations and I've had lots with Denny that each individual circumstance that makes up your life was different and the grief was different so can we just when you were told about Ali's passing are, are you happy to share with us the circumstance around that and, and and just what it was like from a mother's perspective Yes, we can do that, Tony, but um, we sort of need to go in chronological order if we can because yes, that's, we can. That's, that's part yes. of the unfoldment. So do, will you like yes. to introduce that or will I? Uh, I'm happy for you to do that if you're comfortable. Otherwise, mm. I can. Yeah. So, Are you comfortable? Um, Ali's, yes, thanks for asking. <laughs> Ali's first year of high school without a hospitalisation was her third year in high school, year nine here. And yes. that year she came ducks of her year over uh, over 100 other students. She had yeah. been... She was uh, brilliantly intelligent. She was very brilliant. She had gone to an OC school in primary school, uh, opportunity class for very bright children. And um, her first two years in high school, she'd had hospitalisations and had to do it via distance, of her study via distance. Yes. So her third year in high school, she only came second in the year those two years. <laughs> she, she loved oh, okay. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with. She was brilliant and yes. um, a wicked sense of humour, whose wit I miss. But yes. her, um, her third year, she came ducks. So um, she was still... Um, keeping her weight just under the lowest acceptable BMI for her age uh -huh. Uh -huh. and her height. Uh -huh. And then a month after she came ducks, her brother Simon, my eldest, took his own life. Yes. So that's the order in which events happened in our yes. lives. Simon yeah. was 18 and a half and he's a deeply sensitive soul. I was very close to Simon, and um, you, you you can imagine how much that rocked our little single parent family. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Simon was a carpenter. He worked at a wildlife yeah. sanctuary here on the Gold Coast. He yeah. had just finished building a boardwalk. Um, in replacing it, his boss said that he did a better job than the original carpenter had 15 years earlier. So that was yeah. very, very satisfying for him. I could always tell the days that he had been working on the boardwalk. When he'd come home, he'd stride confidently in the door and he'd yes. want to have a really, one of those lovely real chats with me and speak to me on the level. And it was, it was beautiful to see him yes. growing in those ways. He was a very sensitive person, <clears throat> looked at life yeah. to great depth. And we had some amazing discussions. They um, characterised our relationship. I appreciated it very much because he would take my mind places that hadn't been before. And yeah. um, and the trust was beautiful. Yeah. Um, did I expect him to 
take his own life? No, I did not. Um, we'd had discussions about everything, including how it yes. feels when you don't feel like staying anymore. Um, yes. I, I knew that there were times when he found it hard. I, I believe there are times when most of us find it hard, but we feel that we can't say Absolutely. anything about it. Mm-hmm. But we feel there's no it, space for us to be allowed to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we talk here about society's expectations on our young men. Mm. And whilst uh, Simon has a beautiful mother in Denny, and whilst they had all the conversations that would help him as a society, we don't support our sensitive young men in real ways that help them cope when things are bad. Mm. And so you have this beautiful young man and the circumstances around his passing. Do you feel comfortable telling the audience sure. about that? Danny? Yeah, yeah. Um, he had wanted for half of his life uh, a valiant charger. And Which is a car for our American is, listeners. Yes, it's a car, Chrysler. <laughs> and yeah. Um, he he was say he came across this. It came to him a couple of months yes. before his passing, and he loved that car. He was very proud of it. Drove in the Chrysler rallies on the Gold Coast, and um, mm-hmm. very politely drove it home into our garage softly without revving. <laughs> yes, I, I always expected when I heard him started in the mornings to rev it loudly, and he never did. He was very considerate of us. Oh. <laughs> but um, uh, two and a half weeks before he passed, um, he was uh, going down the road from work for Smoko morning tea. And um, he stopped to give way to an elderly lady who had did not have right of way. He stopped to give way to her. She stopped. She saw him and she stopped, he assumed, to give him his right of way. So he continued and she ploughed straight into him and um, pushed him his car into a telegraph pole so it was banged up from different directions. And the constable who attended said he'd never seen such damage from a suburban accident as there was to Simon's charger. And Simon was completely destroyed. It was written off. Mm. And he took that very hard, Tony. Um, He used to to look for the meaning in life and why things had happened, which you do when you're in a lot of pain. Yes. And he'd wanted this car for a long time. He didn't know why it had been taken from him like this. Uh, it just hurt. It just hurt him. So, yeah. uh, you know, afterwards, probably a year after, I happened to be in that suburb with my dad and I pointed to the area next to the telegraph pole where Simon's charger had crashed and my dad said that's where he died. And it felt like that. It felt like that was the death blow, that one. Yeah. It hurt him deeply. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, there were other little contributing factors um, in themselves would not have been enough to push him to this point. Um, One of them I only found out about after he died. Um, Yeah. A couple of synchronicities brought my attention to the name of a young man in our suburb and yes. I started to make some inquiries and it turned out that Simon had been bullied by this young man even oh, the afternoon gosh. of his death. Mm, I didn't. I knew nothing about it and obviously Simon didn't want to trouble us with it. But after he'd said goodbye that the afternoon, um, he was going to a workmate's place for dinner and we yeah. had a, what would turn out to be our final chat. He just beamed in my eyes and said, see ya, (laughs) and got in his car. He'd replaced the charger by then. After he left our place on his way out of the suburb, apparently this young man and his girlfriend um, were on the corner and 
Simon slowed down to show the man, the young man, his new car. He thought this might ease the tension that he didn't understand. Yes. Young man, he thought the young man would be happy for him, but instead yeah. he, the young man lost it and started kicking the side of Simon's car <gasps> a couple of times and I'm effing going to kill you, etc., etc. Some pretty explicit words oh. yelled, yelled oh, at him. Oh, no. At Simon and so Simon continued on to his workmate's place and asked if he could confide in her. He'd apparently mm-hmm. tried to talk to his boss about this problem that he'd had with this young man for yeah. the previous couple of weeks and uh, it was Monday, it was a Monday in which he died. His boss was too busy uh, on Monday morning. By the time he went to look for Simon to talk to him, Simon was out working so he missed the opportunity. But um, Simon rocked up at the workmate's place for dinner and asked if he could speak to her about it. He said he did not know what what the young man's problem was. He didn't know why he was there. And um, the workmate lived with a girl Simon had a little fling with not long before. Right. She was finished. She was in the throes of ignoring him. So this all all kind of descended at the same time. He said to his workmate after dinner, I'm too scared to go home. She said, I'd love to ask you to stay. This is not my place. I'm a guest here myself. So that was that. He made the decision. Yeah. And I got a knock on the door at three in the morning from the police. It's it's very hard oh, to live with suicide is <clears throat> incredibly difficult because you go over and over and over over and over the details the contributing factors and the thing is that this was it, it that if, did the DV affect him more than I realised did this affect him more than I realised if I had done this might that have changed it and you never really get there because they take you a couple never of things. get the answers. You, they take a couple of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle with them and they don't yeah. really mean to or not. You just don't get the whole picture and the picture shifts and yes. the spaces, the missing pieces, they shift and I could never settle for more than a short space on, you know, we call it resolution. I, I really think that's a bit of an idealistic it's concept not to try really. to live with. For resolution me. is it it's a nice sounding oh, word goodness. Mm-hmm. you have to so I he's have a beautiful to, he's a beautiful learn, young man who questions unanswered <laughs> yeah yeah and and you really there's no way that you could have seen this coming and, and I guess for our listeners it's important to point out that the decision to leave this earth is made in a moment and the circumstances around that decision, uh, whether it's successful, whether they do or they don't, all of it rests on moments in time and retrospectively we can say, oh, but what if, but what if, but what if. It still doesn't bring any resolution and those that are left behind, like my beautiful friend Denny, have to learn how to live with that and that's the hard part. So Simon left this earth and Ali was about how old then? Fifteen. Fifteen. Struggling with the anorexia nervosa still? Yes, I wouldn't call it a struggle. She said she didn't suffer mental illness. She enjoyed every moment of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just what a bright soul. She... Yeah, okay. So she enjoyed her mental illness. She didn't suffer from it. That's that's actually going to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said that's the quote at the beginning of her chapter. Yeah. Cheeky. (laughs) Yes. um, She has very cheeky energy, which is just gorgeous. Cheeky Mm. intellectual energy. Mm. And I think it's a fair point too. I think that, you know, Suffering was the suffering came for her when others wanted to take the illness away from her. 
She was sort of in a right. in a happy little world, getting whatever needs met. It was meeting yeah. for her. She was wrapped up in a cocoon with her illness. It was dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. It was toxic. But suffering, she suffered when she had to be hospitalised and others did not understand oh. her. Mm. That was harder. Which, as, as a mother, you've got this desperate desire for your daughter to be happy and healthy. And she actually is, in her mind, uh, happy in her disease process. And when she's when someone tries to manage that disease process, it takes away her happiness. Well, they tried and to take safe space. To, they tried to take it away from her without addressing yeah. the needs that it was actually addressing, because it is a complex illness. Anorexia absolutely is, is a neurosis, not a psychosis. So all mental illnesses yeah. can basically be divided into a neurosis or a psychosis. Very very yes. basic. It's a pretty severe neurosis. Psychosis affects all of your mind. Neurosis affects one part. And she could function adequately Ah. in the other parts, yeah. But having said that, that, it still holds the highest mortality rate. So it's a pretty severe neurosis. But, yeah, she she could be happy in all the other areas of her life. <clears throat> but because it's uh, because its causes are so far removed from its effects, it's it's hard yes. to, to work with, hard to get down yes. to, the, to the root causes. Um, and yeah, for her, um, I think taking it away without uh, adequately addressing, addressing those yeah. causes was uh, that was the suffering for her. Also so treating is her in like a child, which she was always had a maturity about her. She had incredible I was just going to say, mm. yeah, because you have to remember, listeners, that these um, beautiful children had already been through a lot mm. to get to this point in time. Mm. They have a wonderful, brilliant, amazing mother supporting them and loving them, and these things still happened so the point I'm trying to make is that the more we talk about um, anorexia nervosa and teen suicide which both Ali and Simon fall into teen suicide Mm -hmm. the more we talk about it the more we are able to assist uh, parents and particularly mums who are in this this space and those teenagers that are perhaps thinking about the the whole idea that they don't want to live anymore and we must remember too that our brains are not fully developed until we're 24 or 25 so these young adults are still not fully developed they still haven't got the complete set of cognitive skills or coping abilities that they'll have by the time they're mid-adults. And we don't talk about those things enough. And so in Denny bravely talking about her children's suicides, we hope to raise awareness of just how prevalent this is, the impacts of what this does to families and the community and the people that were part of each of these individual children's lives. So darling Simon decided that that enough was enough and mm-hmm. left. Mm-hmm. How did Ali react at that time? Um, so Ali was 15. She had still been... Uh, a very good academic. She had come ducks of her yes. year a month before Simon's death. And as soon as he died, within a few weeks, things started to change dramatically in her life. Um, so dramatically, it was uh, like almost diametrically opposite to who she'd been. Um, uh-huh. Could I read another paragraph? Absolutely, what? please Thank do. Thank you. Within weeks of Simon's death, life began to change significantly for Ali. She was picked up and carried for a while by older friends who'd known Simon and wanted to comfort her, which she needed. Naturally, it worried me when she began staying out late, then sometimes not coming home at all. A month before his death, Ali had come ducks of her year at school. 
a popular student. She'd been elected to the Student Representative Council, a position of responsibility and trust, one we'd soon see she wouldn't be able to fill. She began to rebel, including wagging from school, and letters began arriving from the deputy principal about her absences from class. Near the end of the third term, out of 150 school days, she'd missed 50 and collected several suspensions. In an, in an unexpected irony, Simon's death speedily precipitated Ali's recovery from her anorexia, dwarfing all that had been important to her till then. Within a month, she'd got her first boyfriend. Within four months, she'd put on enough weight to bring on her first period, which then triggered a torrent of hormones. Amidst normal teenagering, recovering from anorexia psychologically and physically, rebelling and grieving for her brother, she was up and down and all over the place. And so was I, Tony. <laughs> yeah, like it's a lot. It's a lot for your poor, darling little family to cope with. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm wondering if um, you're comfortable um, discussing how your youngest son felt with all of this going on. Because you're still mother to um, both Ali and your younger son at this time. Mm. And so you're trying to support all of this and deal with your own grief. Mm. Um, and how did, how did, how did you do it? I, I can't imagine, Denny. Well, thankfully, we had some people in the neighbourhood, a family in the neighbourhood who um, just wrapped their arms around Ashley and just he started spending time. They had four boys. One, yes. their youngest was very close in age to Ash and he used to play with that boy after school every day. And, um, you know, Ash is a little bit on the spectrum, just a little bit, yes. not, not too far up. He works full time. Many people would not guess. So he's only a little bit up there, but I think it protects him a little bit, Tony. It's one of the yes. reasons he still lives with me. <laughs> it protects yes. him a little bit from all that's happened yes. with us. Not all together. It's just, um, yeah. So he he was only 10 when Simon died. Yes. And he was 15. He'd turned 15 about two months before Ali died. Um, and these beautiful young men who had um, embraced him on Simon's death turned up again we had moved house by the time Ali died and mm -hmm. they knocked on the door they had hair color all colors and piercings and I didn't recognize them to begin with and yeah. they they just embraced Ashley and they looked after him he spent every weekend at their place and so suddenly yeah. I had no children left but I needed my space <gasps> to grieve he he needed he needed their company he needed the um, the reprieve from the intensity of everything that we live with. Yes. And, uh, yes. you know, he, he went through his own stuff, Tony. There were a, a couple of times when I Absolutely. would get a, a phone call from the school to say, Ash has come in, he's not doing very well. And I would speed in and... Um, yes, oh, Absolutely you know, begging and pleading for him to be all right and swearing at the thought that he might not be. Um, and I would just take yeah. him home. He, he would not want to talk to me about it. He and I actually yeah, yeah. don't talk about it um, because it's too big to talk about. How we deal with it in our everyday lives is through black humour. And yes. um, that seems to say a real lot. For example, uh, Simon's anniversary, not not so long ago, I knocked on Ashley's bedroom door and I said, I'm just going to take some flowers to the cemetery. Simon's anniversary tomorrow. And he looked in my eyes and said, have fun. And he just, you know, <laughs> oh, you've got to be there. You've got to see it to appreciate the humour. But um, oh. that, that mischievous, wicked play, yes. you know, it says yeah, a lot more than any any words of I feel this and I feel that, you know. Ash did go yeah. through his own difficult spaces with it that I could see but he 
he knew, he seemed to innately know how to look after himself, what to do to help himself feel better. We would stop at the bakery yeah. on the way home from school when I'd picked him up on those days and he would uh -huh. get whatever he wanted and then go home and game, distract himself, distraction. So yes. Yes. he would just know how to look after himself, thank goodness. He still Absolutely. does. He's a, he is a massive yeah. game. <laughs> I think he should yeah. be really good at it. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, um, we are fast approaching um, time for the end of this interview. So just so the listeners know, next week we are going to principally talk about grief um, and and in particular, Denny's grief and how she coped with this. But before we go, I just want people to, listeners in particular, to be aware of the scale of uh, people and particularly young people who die from suicide across uh, the planet. It's a massive, massive problem, isn't it, Denny? Hmm. Yeah, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. And it's, um, I know that I've read in certain scientific uh, journals and research papers that it they consider it to be preventable. However, the reasons that um, our young people decide to suicide are equally complex mm. and it can be a combination of things it might just be one big thing that in that moment they're like I can't take anymore I want the pain to stop I want the blackness to end I just want not to be here mm. and with such a complex discussion and such a, a complex mix of things that happen that uh, end in suicide it's difficult to uh, find something positive uh, in dealing with that. So, Denny, I'm just wondering what were some of the things that that you found helped you in considering considering the loss of these two beautiful young people? Well, Tony, when I look at my children, my my eldest children's deaths, I don't see suicide. I see them. Yeah because I knew them and I loved yeah. them and that love continues and I respected them. They, they were very, yes. very worthy of respect. As young as they were, they were old souls. Um, uh -huh. one, of, one of my aunts who contributed a lot to the field of education and worked in the head of the education department said they could have stayed, Simon and Ali could have stayed for another 50 years and not learnt any more. She didn't mean academically. Yeah. She, she could know. see she could see they were old souls and yeah. um, so I I just haven't I, I pulled inside myself in my world as a bit of a recluse in my griefs and yes, yes. I was less affected therefore by uh, social ideas around yeah. my experiences. Um, uh -huh. And so I don't really, I'm not unaffected by the stigma. I, I have a lot to yes. say in my book about the stigmas and yeah. especially the stigma of suffering and the taboo about death. And I think that, yeah. you know, they yes. are related very much. We can talk about that next time. But uh, yes, I just want to talk about yeah, that next time. Yes, yeah. So I just wanted to say I, I see them. I don't see suicide. And I know from, yeah, and I know from talking to you that there's very, there's a loving uh, energy that surrounds the topic of their deaths. And there's a lovely, it's almost like Ali and Simon are standing either side of you. And it, it's actually very, a very beautiful thing from an external person's point of view um i i appreciate that i'm um quite uh empathetic and intuitive as well but 
any time that Denny and I have an open conversation about either Simon or Ali, I can feel their essence and their presence. And from what I know, I know that the love between a mother and child transcends death almost, that their energy stays. And I relate this back to the concept that as a mother, we uh, grow that child within our body and they become part of us. And I don't think that that changes when they pass. And I feel that when I'm talking to Denny about these uh, complex and triggering subjects. Denny, thank you so much. Thank you. That is a beautiful thing to say. Thank you. Very much. I I have the image when I talk to you. I can actually see it right now, Ali and Simon, (laughs) either side of you. Um, I know that we are out of time for our show this week. I want to particularly thank you for being so vulnerably open and honestly talking about difficult subjects so listeners next week on the final show we're going to delve into the area of grief and we're going to talk about the different phases of grief the different types of grief and how denny got through this to the other side so there's a complex and serious amount of things that she's had to walk through and they've all involved different types of grief and it's really important that we talk about what grieving and grief looks like. Really important conversation to have on the last show next week. Denny, thank you so much for being on Radio Tony again this week. We will chat again next week. Listeners, much love and please reach out and talk to someone if anything that we've discussed tonight affects you in any way. Denny, thank you so much. Um, Over to you, Rebel, and that's it for this week. Radio Tony, your safe space for tough conversations. Exposing secrets and talking about trauma and recovery. Radio Tony, a platform for the unheard. Radio Tony. With Tony Lontis, author of Resilience, memoir of a broken little girl discovering a woman of strength and beauty. Radio Radio Tony. Available now on Amazon.com and in all good bookstores. Radio Tony. Back next Thursday from 7pm Eastern Standard Time, live from the Gold Coast, Australia. Mom.